the number of local uh, VCs is gradually increasing, which is again a really kind of healthy sign. Education areas are something that is booming uh, in in many countries in, in relation also to ad tech, this is my way of kind of gradually switching to that area too. The growth that we are seeing right now is just the tip of the iceberg and there is so much more that we can actually achieve if we democratize entrepreneurship to include the rural population as well. Welcome everyone who tuned in for Scholar Talk today. Scholar Talk is a special initiative by Scholar Network, a Beijing-based nonprofit youth organization. And in Scholar Talk, we sit down with prominent individuals and discuss uh, matters that matter, that are important for the SCO and wider Eurasian region. Today, we will dig into the southern part of the SCO region and more specifically into Pakistan with Ambarin Baik. Ambarine is an aspiring data scientist with master's degree in educational psychology, academic training as a researcher, and diverse experience both in and outside of Pakistan, designing and executing interventions for a vast array of learners. And Ambarine currently works as Insights Lead with Invest to Innovate, an Islamabad-based VC and an accelerator. So today, this is what we're going to discuss. We're going to unpack the startup and innovation ecosystem in Pakistan and try to understand how it works. Thank you very much, Amberine, for agreeing to join Scholar Talk and help us unpack this question. And let's start with eye to eye, actually, invest to innovate, where you're currently working as an insights lead. So uh, I remember you were describing uh, this, this structure of eye to eye to me, and uh, there are mm -hmm. three uh, parts to it, right? There is the uh, accelerator arm, the um, the one that was the first one. Uh, there is the yeah. VC fund, and there is the insights arm that you're currently leading. So could yeah. you please paint for us a picture of the Investo Innovate, the work that it is doing and how that relates to the startup ecosystem in Pakistan in general? So I think to start with, uh, like you said, the very, very first thing that um, Ida started out its journey with was back in 2012 when you know it started incubating, incubating uh, startups in the ecosystem. And um, uh, that was when you know we didn't really have in Pakistan a lot of uh, incubators or accelerators, really. We only had, I think, two incubators uh, and accelerators at that point. Um, so the first thing that we started doing was incubating startups and supporting them and kind of providing that kind of scaffolding in terms of providing business support and such. Uh, but as we, mo we moved along, obviously, we kind of you know moved, moved into um, you know, helping out uh, startups that were more kind of later stage than early stage mm -hmm. as, you know, idea stage. We started identifying as an accelerator because that's what we do right now. We support companies that are a little bit more uh, mature than we used to before. Um, and I think that's why uh, a lot of times our, all of the work that we do is kind of anchored in the work that comes out of the accelerator program because that's where, um, you know, all of our uh, experience is kind of gathered, uh, the experience from the past decade or so. Um, our founder and CEO, Kalsum Lakhani, was the one who actually started this. Um, so thanks to her. And again, you know, our VC fund is actually a separate entity, which was started in 2019. It has made a few investments so far. Combined with both of those arms, um, Insights, when it comes in, provides the startups in the ecosystem a support system that's more holistic than it was before. So, you know, we have, even in our work, we have tried to kind of uh, evolve as much as possible in terms of the kind of support that we provide in terms of making it well connected with each other as well so you know in terms of how we work with startups you'd most often see that you know the work that we do in the accelerator program kind of feeds into our 
um, you know, the kind of work we do in the insights uh, arm. So, you know, a lot of times the thought leadership pieces or publications that we come out with are informed by the learnings from the accelerator program and the networks that we've developed through the accelerator program. And then obviously, vice versa, you know, the findings and things like that that come out of the insights arm, um, you know, the learnings are kind of, you know, put back into our accelerator program. So even when you look at the format or, you know, the kind of accelerator program that we run, you'd see that it has evolved a lot from uh, the first time that we carried it out and how we do it now. So you'd see that we keep uh, kind of adding new and new services, new aspects every other year, because we heavily rely on the feedback that we receive from uh, founders um, that we work with in the accelerator program. So that's how we usually um, like to see ourselves, even though these are three different mm -hmm. arms, we like to see it as a process where um, the knowledge and information kind of flows both ways. So it's not just cyclic, it's always kind of, you know, goes the other way uh, as well. Within the insights arm, um, you have recently launched uh, the so-called deal tracker. It is essentially a database of the traceable investments into Pakistani startups over the past uh, five years. And there is a wealth of data there that I would encourage anyone interested in uh, Pakistani startup um, system to go and check out because it's a very it's a very comprehensive data set. What would you highlight as the key trends in the sector in the Pakistan uh, innovation ecosystem and uh, startup ecosystem from this data that you've gathered? No, like you said, Alicia, I feel like there is a lot to unpack there because um, we, I mean, the deal flow tracker is not just something that we started working on now this year, but it was, you know, something that even from the time of my predecessor in IDAI, Anushya Ashraf, you know, she was the one who actually had started working on it at that point uh, where it was not just limited to Pakistan, but it had data on benchmark countries as well. Uh, and so we would like gather all of these different insights on, you know, what was happening in terms of investment landscape at that point, just to understand uh, how, you know, capital moved around and things like that. And, you know, whether there were com comparable countries around that we could, you know, learn some lessons from and things like that. So we then refined uh, this product last year in 2019 when we were working with the Women Entrepreneurs Finance Init uh, Initiative, um, aka WeFi, um, you know, in collaboration with the World Bank. Uh, on a report that mapped Pakistan's startup ecosystem. So the past few years um, that we have spent working on this database have kind of you know solidified our belief that a unified and um, reliable resource um, is much needed at this point to help the stakeholders understand the health of the capital investment landscape in Pakistan. Um, so I mean that's that was kind of the idea at the core of it. Uh, which is why this year uh, we decided that it was probably the best time for us to kind of release it um, because, you know, with everything that's going on um, and also because of the fact that, you know, post-COVID we did, um, not post-COVID actually, as soon as COVID started, I think uh, when lockdowns were implemented in Pakistan in March 2020, uh, we did a study on uh, the impact of COVID on startups in Pakistan. Uh, and that was also something that kind of made us realize that, you know, this kind of data is also um, you know, data on specifically deal flow is also something that needs to be tracked and kind of put out there so that people can learn lessons from it and people can, um, you know, stakeholders in the ecosystem can actually make decisions based on those, um, you know, data. And it captures uh, deal flow data from 2015 to uh, 2020, and it's an adjustable tool. And uh, so, you know, what we do is that every time we receive some additional information from people in the ecosystem who, um, you know, might be reporting uh, deals that we didn't really track or something, or if there's any, you know, flawed information on the tracker, we actually get feedback in real time from people and we kind of, you know, incorporate that into the tracker. So it's very adjustable, it's very kind of, you know, something that we will be building on uh, in the future as well. And in terms of, you know, what are some of the findings and things like that, I feel like 
one of the key things that we found out was that there were 141 deals from 2015 to 2020. And out of these 141 deals, we found that 19 deals were actually, um, you know, not so the amounts for these 19 de deals were undisclosed. So we didn't really know, you know, how much of investment mm -hmm. was raised in these 19 deals. Uh, but minus those 19 deals, and we had 122 deals that accounted for $178 million uh, in total. Uh, and that's, you know, actually a huge amount considering that we are not really that old, like, you know, Pakistani startup ecosystem is actually fairly um, new in that, you know, it, it has only been in existence for the past, you know, decade or so. In terms of findings, I think one of the key things that we uh, took away from from this data and you know the analysis, subsequent analysis that we did was that women specifically are not really raising enough capital, um, not just in terms of amounts. So you know how much of the deal size uh, do they account for every time they raise an investment, but also in terms of the frequency, uh, in that you know how many times do women-led businesses actually end up raising investments or women-founded businesses actually end up raising investment. So that was one of the huge uh, things that we found out. And this also kind of goes back to our report that I was referring to, uh, the Pakistan Startup Ecosystem Report that we did with, uh, in collaboration with WeFi. Uh, and this found finding was actually something that we actually uh, saw in that report and the data that we had collected for that report as well. So it was interesting to see that, you know, the same stuff was again kind of solidified through this uh, deal flow tracker research as well. 75% um, were, you know, out of the total deals, actually, 75% was attributed to male-founded uh, startups. So that actually shows you how that dwarfs the amount and also the number of deals um, made by women-led businesses. And then 15% were, um, you know, of, of these, uh, these deals were attributed to mixed-gender-founded uh, startups. Um, and when it came to female-founded uh, startups, we saw that only 9% of the number of deals was accounted for by female-founded uh, startups. And when it came to amount raised, uh, only 2%. When you look at those 9%, they actually translate to only 2% of the total amount that was raised. So 2% mm -hmm. of $178 million, which is very, very less, right? Um, so this was, again, something that we had, you know, was, again, one of the findings from the report that we did earlier in 2019 as well. But this actually solidified it even more in that, you know, we saw that we kind of further, uh, you know, uh, disaggregated the data by mixed gender um, startups as well. So, you know, which was not something that we had done earlier for the for the other other report. Mm -hmm. um, and then for female founded startups, we um, also saw that they often raise investment from local angels, uh, local VCs or accelerators and incubators. And, you know, we, I don't want to like, you know, go too far and say that, you know, this is why that is, because we don't really have enough data to say why that is. But, you know, we have seen generally in the ecosystem that a lot of times women feel um, a little bit more comfortable um, raising from investors such as local angels, because a lot of times that means that, you know, this is, um, you know, a lot of times an angel investor actually means that it's um, either family and friends or someone that is a little bit more approachable than, say, uh, you know, VC. Um, so that was one of the, you know, again, one of the key findings that we found out from the uh, from the deal flow tracker data as well. Another interesting finding was that international VCs are the biggest contributors when it comes to Series A investments specifically, um, you know, raised between 2015 to 2020, you know, present, um, followed by local VCs. So there, there wasn't, in case of specifically Series A investment, uh, there wasn't really that big a difference in terms of the amount raised um, under this specific stage of investment. But in general, obviously, in international uh, VCs, uh, while they accounted for a smaller number of deals, 
um, the sizes of deals that they made were significantly larger than local VCs. And then another really interesting thing was that the number of local uh, VCs is gradually increasing, which is again a really kind of healthy sign. Uh, in that you know, big, in the beginning of um, let's say you know, going back to 2015, we didn't really see that many local VCs, maybe one or two, who were contributing in that way. And now we see that there are a significantly higher number of local VCs. And a lot of times there's again a nuance in Pakistan where um, it's not really expensive for local funds to register in Pakistan, local VC funds to register in Pakistan, but it is very cumbersome. The process is really, really taxing and it involves, um, it requires a lot of personal connections as well. So you'd see a lot of times that even though funds are local, quote unquote, but they would end up registering outside of or licensing themselves outside of Pakistan because that is easier. So the regulatory processes are easier outside in some other country compared to, uh, you know, that in Pakistan. So that's, again, an interesting uh, categorization kind of nuance that we felt like was important to point out. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about um, the sectors and such, but, you know, we, we generally saw that e-commerce and mobility and, you know, edtech and fintech and health tech and gaming and such were some of the sectors that actually got a lot of um, traction from uh, local VCs specifically. So yeah, these were these were some of the key, um, really, really kind of you know interesting findings that we uh, kind of you know took away from from the deal flow tracker data. You mentioned a very interesting detail about the uh, local VC funds uh, registering abroad yeah. because it's too cumbersome. Do you classify them as local in your database, or do you classify we them don't. as international? Oh, international. Yeah, we we oh. no. So no, no, no. So we actually do classify them as local. So okay, you okay. see. Yeah, so you'd see a lot of times that they are, so it's very like, you know, that's, that's one of the key issues in Pakistan, a lot of times where, you know, it's very confusing, you know, fund, a fund would be registered somewhere else outside of Pakistan, but a lot of times they'd have investors who are actually Pakistani citizens at least. So it's a combination. So you have, you know, angel investors as well who come together and like, you know, put their money into a VC fund and things like that. So it's, you know, it's not as, a lot of times it's not as structured as, you know, other let's say, you know, developed countries or developed entrepreneurship ecosystems. Mm -hmm. No, this is this is very um, enlightening, let's say. And I think there are many details that our listeners also can see are very particular and have to be studied um, in detail yeah. to understand comprehensively Pakistan's innovation ecosystem. You don't only do research like deal tracker and reports, you also support um, startups that are mm -hmm. under, uh, undergo acceleration uh, under eye to eye and you're working mm -hmm. with investors. Um, so what mm -hmm. kind of assistance do you offer to them? Are there also any areas where you find startups or investors in Pakistan less aware about compared to their foreign counterparts? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of the support that we provide to the larger ecosystem, I feel like the biggest, I'd say like, you know, not to brag or anything, but like, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that we, we publish, a lot of times the pieces that we come up with and things like that, even for instance, you know, going back to 2014 and then 2016, when we did the Pakistan Startup Ecosystem Report for the first time in 2014 and then 2016. And then the third time that we did it was with Bify, just like I said before. So the first two ecosystem reports that we had done were actually completely pro bono. So we have a lot of times kind of gone out of our way to do stuff that is that we are not really paid for, but we we just we do it just because of the fact that we know that it has a lot of value for not just startups, but also investors. So a lot of times we try to target, um, you know, topics that are interesting for investors, that investors would, you know, especially investors who are not in Pakistan on the ground, I feel like 
we can be their eyes and ears and we can provide them that information that's really important for them to understand Pakistani market. Um, so a lot of times, you know, even uh, with the monthly newsletter or sometimes bi-monthly newsletter that we do, um, a lot of times you'd see that we cover topics such as, you know, a tech or, you know, for instance, the next newsletter that we are going to do for uh, the month of September is going to be about um, the grocery app space. Uh, grocery delivery space, uh, which is really kind of booming in Pakistan at the moment, and I'm sure in other countries as well. Uh, but you know, a lot of times the the kind of subjects that we target is pur purposely kind of based on the fact that you know these are areas that investors specifically, but even other people, other stakeholders in the ecosystem probably want to learn more about. And a lot of times that is kind of defined by the fact that we often go out looking for that information. You know, we have a VC fund, and and they a lot of times need that kind of information to make important decisions. So I feel like that is how um, Insight Arm specifically tries to contribute uh, to the ecosystem in general. Even with the deal flow tracker that I feel like a lot of times, you know, for instance, one example would be, you know, startups often go out of, uh, have to go out of their way and like, you know, try to dig up this um, data and that is often, I mean, frankly, not really easily available in Pakistan when they're making pitches and when they're making the case for why their startup is um, actually needed and why their startup can actually prove lucrative in the future. So I feel like that is how Insights Arm specifically contributes to the ecosystem. But then we have the fund and we have the accelerator program, which have different ways of contributing to the ecosystem as well. So for instance, our accelerator program um, not only runs the accelerator cohort, but at the same time, we also work with uh, partners in the ecosystem. Um, for instance, you know, some of the programs that we are running currently are, one of them is Facebook Startup Circle, which is really interesting and it kind of brings together um, entrepreneurs in the ecosystem to kind of, you know, give them in part like, you know, really basic um, skills that are important for uh, entrepreneurs to, to uh, function uh, aptly in an ecosystem like ours. And then we also have the, again, a World Bank slash WeFi initiative, which literally came out of the, is based on the study that we did in 2019. So the learnings from the 2019 startup ecosystem report we did actually fed into this program. And now we have designed an intervention for women entrepreneurs based on those findings. And we're trying to fill in those gaps in terms of, you know, how we can help women entrepreneurs to be better prepared for investment raising process. It, it involves a very detailed curriculum on investment readiness and what that entails and how um, female entrepreneurs specifically can be prepared for that process. And also um, on the site, then we also train under the same program entrepreneurship support organizations in the ecosystem who then kind of, you know, funnel that support into the startups that they are working with. It kind of cascades, but it's also a very kind of comprehensive model that we're working on. Um, and this kind of support that we provide kind of takes different forms and shapes a lot of times. Uh, through those three arms. So a very educational mission as well that the Insights Arms has. Education area as well is something that is booming uh, in, in many countries in, in relation also to ad tech. This is my way of kind of gradually switching to that area too. <laughs> I was actually looking through the deal tracker too uh, to look mm -hmm. at the statistics and some dynamics in, in the ad tech sector. I noticed that ad tech uh, raised more through local VCs compared to international, which is a bit different from, from the wider picture that you've um, that you yeah. painted for us that local VCs invest in more startups numerically, but in terms of the value, it is it is provided by the international investors. So yeah. in terms of ad tech in Pakistan, how would you characterize the ad tech scene in Pakistan at the moment? Is it something that is dominated by some big education platforms or is more fragmented? What is happening there? I definitely say that it is um, more fragmented at the moment. And I'm talking specifically about the edtech scene 
and not really about the education scene in general. So you have, um, you know, where the latter has mostly kind of, you know, been dominated by well-established players in the private sector, for instance, you know, running schools for the higher SES, uh, and more, uh, most of the government schools who are, you know, kind of catering to the lower SES, which is like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of simplifying things. Obviously, it's like, you know, it has more color to it than that. Um, but if you look at the traditional education uh, landscape, it's obviously dominated by, I definitely say that a few powerful people who have been in the ecosystem for a long time. Uh, but when it comes to edtech specifically, I feel like it's much more fragmented at the at the moment, and I feel like that's fortunate for now because we don't want to be kind of halting what what pro progress we are seeing with one or two people kind of monopolizing the entire industry. Mm -hmm. um, so edtech startups, you know, for instance, um, as opposed to the traditional education system in Pakistan, have come into the picture fairly recently, and you know, except for a few edtech startups such as Knowledge Platform or you know, Dot Online and a few others who have actually been around for quite some time now. Um, mm -hmm. So some of these well-established startups um, might actually go on to dominate the scene uh, in the future. But luckily, I mean, for now, we have seen that the capital is quite well distributed in terms of, you know, how each of these, um, you know, different players, edtech startups that are out there in the ecosystem have actually been able to raise funding, um, you know, once or twice or even more than that. Um, and, and so that's a really, I feel like, a healthy sign and a speculation, I feel like this is a personal speculation, is that um, while for a long time the education sector was left to the mercy of kind of, you know, NGOs alone, and a lot of times, you know, we've, we felt like people often think in Pakistan education sector is something that would benefit most often from, you know, non-government organizations and then impact investment and things like that. Um, we feel like things have been shifting in, in, in the recent times. So that's, again, a really positive sign. And we have seen edtech players, um, you know, raise investment from formal uh, VC funds, which is, again, a really good sign because that shows that people actually see it as a lucrative in industry, which was mm -hmm. not really the case before. Um, and the government's attempt also at mass instruction in the recent time post-COVID, uh, once restrictions were imposed in terms of, you know, lockdowns and things like that, um, you know, it, it, the, the government's attempt at mass instruction that included a national public TV channel to broadcast um, school lessons, uh, which kind of, you know, raised a lot of questions in terms of the quality that it was of content that it was delivering, but also, um, you know, the, the way that it was delivered, the way of instruction and things like that. Um, but I feel like the upside, uh, upside to that was that even um, though it showed the gaps in the traditional education system in Pakistan, um, you know, it also kind of pointed out the opportunity, the massive opportunity that exists for edtech startups as well, you know, which is kind of identified mm -hmm. by the fact that uh, the government actually had to kind of lend, um, you know, content from startups that were already operating in the e ecosystem in Pakistan. Um, which was again, I mean, it's it's a two-way process, but at the same time, it's also something that's a really positive sign that you are, you have. I mean, it's unfortunate as well, but you know, at the same time, it shows that you have edtech startups who are actually way more prepared than the government to tackle an issue of this level. Um, so, you know, another example actually would be that um, the Sindh government that launched, you know, an, an Android uh, mobile learning app for students, um, you know, kindergarten through grade five in late May this year again, you know, post-COVID, um, which is not even, you know, this, this platform is not even reaching 50% of the overall student population in the province, which is, again, I mean, that also points out the gap that we have been, that I've been pointing out. Um, and the potential of edtech startups in bridging this gap is actually, you know, they've, they've um, not just because of the fact that they have the ability to scale, a lot of times they can blitz scale, which is not something that we have traditionally, uh, you know, seen the government initiatives, you know, be able to do in the past. So I feel like that's why, you know, there's 
um, the, the being fragmented part actually has a lot of benefit for the country in, in the larger picture. I wanted to talk about the current situation um, and post-COVID situation in the wider startup and innovation uh, ecosystem in Pakistan. You mentioned before uh, the grocery delivery mm -hmm. apps. Uh, you, you just said that government is actually interested in encouraging more innovation in ad tech post-COVID. Um, but are there any other areas uh, where you see growth uh, in and potentially post-COVID? And is there a different a difference, let's say, with um, the government preferring specific areas and sectors to support mm -hmm. uh, startups? We have recently seen not just the data that we collected for the uh, COVID study that we did, which was mostly kind of to gauge the impact of COVID on startups in Pakistan. Uh, not just that, but even, you know, other uh, material that we have seen come out from the ecosystem. We have mostly seen that uh, startup sectors such as um, e-commerce, mobility, edtech, um, fintech, health tech, and gaming have actually been uh, some of the key sectors that have received a lot of attention, not just from local VCs, but also from international VCs. There's a slight difference in how international VCs have been investing versus how local uh, VCs have been investing, which I'll get to in a minute. But generally, I feel like that's how uh, we have seen kind of investments go on in the ecosystem for at least, uh, you know, from 2015 to 2020 to present. Um, but more recently, uh, to answer your question, I feel like uh, because of the situation and how uh, you know people priorities have changed over over the you know over this time, as uh, lockdowns were imposed and everything, you know all of the schools closed and just like I said, it actually took like the government and even the provincial governments quite some time. Like you know they took their sweet time to actually come up with not even a sound enough solution for education for like you know imparting education to um, both high income and low income students. Um, in the country. So it, it actually took them a lot of time. And, and that's why I was pointing to the fact that edtech startups were actually the ones who actually came in and filled in that gap in a lot of ways. Um, and obviously there is the, the fact that the government is broadcasting these lessons and everything um, on, on the TV channel as well. But at the same time, it's hard to gauge the impact of those lessons versus with startups. A lot of times you see that they are able to put uh, systems in place that are actually able to show how much of an impact they're creating in terms of you know, classes taken in terms of um, teachers trained or even in terms of, you know, scores and how they go up and down and, you know, testing learning and all of learning outcomes and things in different ways, which is way more innovative than the government sector. So, I mean, edtech is obviously one of the uh, sectors that actually did really, really well um, amidst COVID, uh, which is obviously, you know, the case, um, almost the same case in, 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 you know, globally in other countries as well. But in the context of Pakistan specifically, we felt like edtech was one of the sectors, uh, especially from the COVID study that we did. We saw that edtech, health tech, uh, fintech, and um, then we had essential services was one of the big sectors that actually, um, you know, fared well under COVID. Um, and I'd go as far as to say that they actually benefited from the situation. I mean, for the lack of a better word, um, you know, it was that obviously, but at the same time, you know, this was an opportunity for a lot of these startup sectors. And that's what we saw. We saw that, you know, grocery delivery apps actually ended up raising investments. Um, I think four of them actually ended up raising, if I'm not wrong, uh, raising investments this year. More broadly, it's essential services, but at the same time, grocery delivery more specifically and medic medicine delivery as well. Um, so these are some of the areas that we saw have kind of, you know, benefited a lot from, um, from, from COVID during this time. And then e-commerce, mobility, edtech, fintech, health tech, and gaming particularly. Uh, we saw that local VCs have invested in these 
traditionally invested in these uh, startup sectors more than um, any other type of investor in, in the ecosystem. And specifically, e-commerce e and health tech accounted for 33% of the seed investments from 2015 to 2020. July. So, I mean, that that actually shows that there is a preference in terms of what kind of sector the local investors at least, you know, invest in. And then we have international VCs, which we, from the data, from the deal flow data that we have recently released, we saw that international VCs have mostly kind of leaned towards health tech, uh, fintech, e-commerce, web-based apps, energy, mobility, edtech, marketing tech, and so on. And in that order. So we have seen that more deals have happened in edtech, fintech, commerce web-based and then so on. So that's, that's again, a little bit of a difference in terms of how local VCs have been investing and how international VCs have been in investing. You know, just wanted to point out that it's, EdTech is not really a sector that we have seen as more kind of preferred by the international VCs specifically. What one development would you want to happen in Pakistan's innovation scene in five years time? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, it's actually a really difficult question to answer for me because I'm a researcher and we kind of don't really bode really well with these kind of questions. I feel like for us, it's more, right. more like, you know, what's the, what's the data saying? What's going to happen? Yeah. So we kind of, I mostly look for evidence and such, but challenging. Generally, like, I'll, I, I'll try, I'll try my best. Um, but I feel like, I mean, I feel like there are two things. One is kind of a little bit more superficial than the other, but I feel like we have, you know, quite a few you know, what, what you'd call a unicorn, um, you know, soon to be a unicorn. But, you know, I, I feel like we, all of us who have been working in the startup ecosystem in Pakistan, we have been looking forward to see a unicorn for a long time. And it's about time that we see one. Um, and honestly, there are a lot of contenders. There are a lot of startups that have been doing amazingly well in Pakistan. We're really, really hopeful that that will happen soon. Uh, but a little bit more of a non-superficial answer will be that, you know, I feel like above all, above any of this stuff, I feel like it's really important to um, document and also digitize uh, the informal competitors in, in the Pakistani startup ecosystem. So we have rural areas that are also, you know, kind of contributing to the entrepreneurship ecosystem, but it's just a little bit different than, uh, I mean, quite different than how things go on in the uh, urban areas, but um, that's what is something that we want to be kind of, you know, working towards. So the growth that we are seeing right now um, is just the tip of the iceberg. And there is so much more that we can actually achieve if we democratize entrepreneurship to include the rural population as well. So, I mean, I feel like that's one of the biggest things for me. And I also, you know, from the research and stuff that we do, I feel like that's something that has been done in other countries. I mean, for instance, you have India where, you know, it's obviously not perfect or anything, but at the same time, they have startups such as um, near my health uh, analytics or which is a health tech startup and then easy knockery and all of these who are th these are actually startups that are based in you know rural environments and they've been able to thrive uh, regardless of that so I feel like firstly for me I feel like that would be one of the biggest things that I'd like to see is that you know we take entrepreneurship from urban areas and we take it to the rural areas that are more kind of you know far flung and you know are also at the same time contributing to the economy mm -hmm. um, but we need to formalize that and we need to digitize that so that they can also be part of this change and they can also benefit from you know whatever is coming out of this process
I think it's a beautiful thought. It's a beautiful sentiment as well. Thank you very much, Amberine, uh, for joining us for this Scholar Talk. Hopefully, uh, Pakistan's innovation scene has become less of a mystery for our audience right now. And uh, I'll see you in the next Scholar Talks where we continue unpacking our region for everyone. Thank you. And thank you, Amberine. Thank Amberine. you so much. Thank <laughs> you.